You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. You're listening to Smashed from The Ensemblist, the only podcast that shows you Broadway from the inside out. I'm Aaron Albano. And I'm Mo Brady. Welcome back, listeners, to our tongue-in-cheek recap of what is still the Broadway community's favorite TV show, Smash. Yes, we're talking about the NBC series that aired from 2012 to 2013. Smash was also an incredible glimpse into the theater community in the early 2010s, as many of the show's writers, actors, and dancers were played by real Broadway performers with real Broadway cred. But we wanted to go back in time to see how the show has weathered what it got right, and what it got very, very wrong. (laughs) So let's dive in and talk about Season 1, Episode 2, The Callback. Aaron, give us the stats. Don't mind if I do, Mo. Episode 2 is titled The Callback, and it premiered on February 13th, 2012. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) All right. It was written by Teresa Rebeck and directed by Michael Mayer, both of whom also wrote and directed the pilot. Viewership took a big dip in the second episode. It was viewed by... 8.06 million people, which was 26% down from the pilot episode. So we loved the pilot, but 3 million people did not. I guess, right? (laughs) There were four featured songs, two original by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, and two covers. The two originals were a different version of Let Me Be Your Star from the previous episode, and a new song called The 20th Century Fox Mambo. And what happens in the episode, Mo? Well, the episode begins with the bombshell creative team mulling over whether they are hashtag Team Ivy or hashtag Team Karen. Tom and Julia are playing with the show's structure, moving songs around as director Derek takes Karen and Ivy through dance auditions. However, Tom tells Ivy, I would have just given it to you. Yes, he does. (laughs) Karen stays late for a work session, missing an important business dinner of her boyfriend's, Dev. Ivy takes the the challenge of competition for the role head-on, reading biographies, watching movies, practicing Marilyn's lip placement, and eventually having sex with the director. There we go. In the final auditions... Karen performs a full-staged version of 20th Century Fox Mambo, surrounded by ensemblists, which Derek justifies by telling Eileen, Tom, and Julia, oh, guys, the song was just so good that we went ahead and staged the whole thing. (laughs) So we have these two women pitted against each other. Karen is green, but she is certainly trained. Ivy is completely spontaneous and sexy. Ivy comes out on top. As the orchestra swells, she cries, but Eileen and Derek agree to keep their eye on Karen Cartwright. Also, Dev works at City Hall, and Julia pursues adopting a baby from China that her son Leo wants, but her husband Frank doesn't, but nobody cares. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. 
FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So in the second episode, we have this work session for Karen. She's learning some of the choreography, mm-hmm. right? And she's learning with four dancers, yes? Yes, yeah. And who, because I knew Philip Spath, Eleanor Scott, Ricky Tripp, but I didn't know who the last one was. Oh, it's you... Christine Covello. She... Oh, okay, she was fantastic. I mean, they were all fantastic, right. but I didn't know her. No, what? she lasted on The Town was her last Broadway gig. Oh, nice. And I think she's a new mom. We also got to see the women in the dream sequence. Oh, my sort God. Of the opening of the show. Like the opening where they're kind of brainstorming what that would look like. Right. First off, that section of the show, when when they introduced that as the opening, I was like, I could be on board with this opening of the, of the show. Who was in there? It was Katie Weber, Savannah Weiss, Jess Golden. And then the two? Yes. Yeah. The one thing I thought was like Savannah is stage left and she's like lay- like in a pose with one leg out or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that would be a really uncomfortable pose to be in. Take to after take hold. after take after take. When you're on stage and you're doing a tableau, you're like, oh, this is you, you want to pick something that your body can do mm-hmm. kind of like eight times a week for however long you need to do it. Yeah. But when you're doing something on set, it's like. I just need to pick something that I can do for six hours today. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I think is interesting is that we're seeing the same dancers over and over again. Oh, for sure. Part of that is obviously just the production of Smash has these people in their back pocket. They they know their phone numbers. They know whose agents to call. Right. Yeah. But what's cool from sort of a meta point is we are building an ensemble. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's definitely like a subconscious nod to the way this business works. These people are Derek's people and that he's going to carry with the show from beginning through if he trusts them. All right. All right. How do you like this episode, Mo? Um... It's our very first time in the Smash rehearsal room, which I love. I love that Smash rehearsal room. That feels iconic to me. I love the fake background. It oh, yeah. looks like like we're somewhere on like 25th Street looking north between 5th and 6th Avenues to the Empire State Building. Work. You never cl- you never clocked that? <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, yeah. Um fun fact about that rehearsal room, mm-hmm. that big window is fake. Yeah. But the window that is to the right of the mirrors is real. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I was never in that yeah. room, so I, I had no idea. I rehearsed and was held in that room a lot because literally next to that room was the black box theater that Hit List used in Act 2. Oh. All right. See, because I knew all of this was just like in Sound stages, yes. Yeah. All right. We're getting ahead of ourselves. I love being in the rehearsal room. And I loved the work session that Karen has. I thought that was fun. Full work session. Right. A full just Maryland boot camp. For Has her. what? Explain what a boot camp is. <laughs> so a boot camp, if you heard from previous episodes of the Ensemblist, basically like a week long faux audition where you learn multiple numbers from shows. Like I remember, like Tracy boot camp. Yeah, for and Jersey ha- Boys boot camp. Yeah, and Hamilton boot camp. Hamilton boot camp. And but but those you get paid for. Yes, this was not. Yes, anyone got paid nowhere. No. 
Eileen was not writing any checks to anyone. Well, this she time. doesn't have any money, as we find out later. <laughs> it's all in escrow. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite moments of it yeah. are when Derek yells into the phone, we'll get back to you, Bernie, as a nod to Bernie Telsey, but <laughs> hey, never Bernie. gets explained. Like, no. there's your, like, your inside. The insiders, complete. Yes. Well, the, ins- the insiders are rampant. Joe Mahota, a shout out. Mm-hmm. Oh, Bernie. Jo- uh, cameo by Jordan Roth. Pre, pre-fashionista Jordan yes. Roth. This is shaved head uh-huh. version of Jordan Roth. They're in old Bond 45. Yeah, I was like, they're in Bond 45. Oh, Tom Kitt Tom at the Kitt? end. Yes, Tom Kitt, like, hosting the duplex or something. Yeah, exactly. Who is the composer of Next to Normal? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Like, quite, he's probably not hosting at the duplex. No, not even a little bit. We also got our very first drink to the face count. Which yes. I feel like was like a thing that Smash ended up becoming known for. Eileen throws a drink oh, yeah. into Jerry's face. And it became iconic. Yes. <laughs> I wrote first martini! Exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Other favorite moments of the episode? Well, we got into this last episode, but let's continue on Tom's relationship with Ivy. Because it really takes a spike where I'm just like, what is your relationship with Ivy? I wrote, Tom's investment in Ivy borders on inappropriate. The way they're arguing about who is more appropriate, Team Ivy, Team Ivy or Tim Karen, mm-hmm. there is no objectivity there whatsoever. Oh, sure. Completely not. Which, uh, there's, there, there is a level of, like, being in someone's corner. But uh, there's another one where you're just, she's the person and that's all. Is that because people like Tom and Derek are archetypes? Because we just don't have enough time in an hour-long television episode to, like, let Tom go on a journey to, like, be in Karen's court and then come back and be in Ivy's court. I don't think so. Even from the pilot, and granted, be inspired by your friend Ivy, who recorded your first demo. But now you're in production. Mm-hmm. And now you have to find the best person for the job. Right. And being completely resistant to all the points that Derek and Eileen are making that are, and Julia are making very strongly about how as ugly as we ensemblists find this idea is that yes, pure talent does not sell a show. Star quality is different than ensemble talent. Yeah. I mean, and, and whether Ivy has that or not, them putting up Scarlett Johansson, them suggesting these other names that could very well do the role, they just haven't seen them yet, mm-hmm. Tom is completely resistant to. Tom is like, Ivy or no one. Like, And I'm just like, N- that's... That's not how you get a show produced. Yeah, and I'm just like, we're casting right now, bro. Like, <laughs> You need to see all these people and keep an open mind. When, when he says, you know, I would have just given it to you, that's great. But also, like, if you're as close to this woman as you know, as we know you are, you know how she'll... React. React yeah. and respond and... She's, like, she's enabling a, that behavior? She's an extra woman. Yeah. And I'm just like... Can we call then, her Extra Ivy from now on? Extra Ivy. Perfect. Yeah. Hashtag okay. Extra Ivy. And, 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 and even at the end, when he goes out of his way to come to the theater, which is very sweet and very nice, but also I'm just like, you are lifting her up to have a massive fall. It's not the smartest. Like, you, you can be for her all you want, but, like, there is a level of professionalism that is not being observed in their relationship at least the one that we see on the show i want to ask about another albano fact check oh okay this director hates this composer yes have you seen that i don't know i actually like i've even from the pilot i was like has there been any iconic director composer animosity in the history of broadway well it seems like bad producing that you would bring together two people who 
yeah, just aren't gonna collaborate with yeah, each other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because there is a level of both of them are fantastic, but at some point, the chemistry, just like it needs to be on stage, it needs to be backstage too. And right. if there's no chemistry within these this creative team, then it's just gonna be toxic when they're developing the show and that's going to carry on stage. But again, but that's... that's Especially if she's... It's her first time going out producing on her own. Why yeah. would she go with this person? It seems like you'd go with a safe room. Well, I mean, or people who will be... The thing that pings in my head is the... Like the Hamilton creative team. Mm-hmm. Like they're all brilliant on their own. But because they have such a close friendship and such a collaborative energy within them, Tommy Kale, Lynn, Andy, and Alex all feed off of each other a because they like each other b because they trust each other Mm -hmm. and you're not going to achieve that kind of brilliance with people who hate each other one of the things i love about these beginning episodes is that we're able to meet philip spaith and savannah wise yeah right these are two actors at this point who are broadway ensemblists like Mm -hmm. have ensemble cred and are really getting a chance to shine yeah and so we're seeing their relationship and it feels like very authentic to me when we see Megan and Philip and Savannah walking down 44th, 44th Street, Street yeah. right with like posters of on a clear day you can see forever and mm-hmm. anything goes and sister act you're like this is literally a conversation you know when they're holding their Starbucks coffees uh-huh. and they're like walking to their stage door. yeah like that is so authentic and so true yeah both Philip and Savannah do a fantastic job of like sort of coming in when they're needed giving some reality to the situation, feeling like they're authentically part of a Broadway ensemble, mm-hmm. and then stepping back into the background. Yeah. Yes. What I don't love about this episode is that I feel like this is where we start getting off the rails about what it means to be an ensemble performer. Oh, completely. There, I call it chorus shaming. Chorus shaming. Yes. It was. The, I think this is the episode where we start getting into that. Oh, sure. We get a quote where it's classic. You put in 10 years in the chorus and Karen just shows up. Yeah. And I was like, that's not how it works. I was like, no. <laughs> Theater is not a ladder that you climb up. Exactly. And because there's like 22-year-olds making their Broadway debuts every single month mm-hmm. in every single show, yeah. right? Like, Also, there are people who are great ensemble actors who don't play leads. Like, the one is not requisite of the other. It's sort of that star quality thing. Just yeah. because you're a great ensemble actor doesn't mean that you are a Broadway star. Those are two different skill sets. Mm-hmm. They can overlap, and some people do do both. Yeah. But but this, this hierarchy that was seen both inside and outside the, the industry was really augmented by this show. Right. Really ground my gears mm-hmm. for a long time. I wrote... The first sign of chorus bashing was the Ivy, Dennis, and Jessica scene where Ivy refers to her own track as a demented duck. Like there's some self-loathing of what you're doing. But we've also been in Broadway ensembles where someone in it hates it. Yeah. Right? There's like... I have a very specific memory of someone in the Adams Family Ensemble who never seemed grateful to be there. And I was like, you are literally on Broadway right now. Yeah. There are five men in this ensemble and you are one of them. Exactly. Yeah. Why are you so angry? Oh my gosh. And and, and it's a a perspective. And I think it gets worse as the show progresses Mm -hmm. because, but it really promoted this idea that you better be the star of the show or nothing. Right. Because 
If ensemble IV, members are lower than low. Right. And if Ivy didn't get this job, then what would it all have been for? Yeah. And I'm just like, no. As someone who loves being in their ensemble, having done all the other positions in this business, I'm like, it is a perfectly respectful and... Some people think that way. Some people yeah. backstage do talk that way, would call their track a demented duck. Yeah. And maybe, maybe at this point in the show, it was showing the authenticity of some of those people in our in our business but we never saw the other side of it no one else dennis or jessica or anyone else is being like i like being in the ensemble this is good there was no other perspective Mm -hmm. and therefore the show created this um, myth this another myth in this episode i think is the idea that playing a lead is only about paying your dues or getting ahead in this business is only about paying your dues. If you do enough work in the ensemble, if you do enough work, then you can start getting bigger roles. It, it, it was a, It's a perspective on the business that because this show was built for people to look into our industry. Right. It was not like a pathos that should have been promoted. Right. But you think about creating a television show and yeah. pathos of an ensemble actor's career is probably not something you're thinking about yeah but then but then but then this then promoting this (laughs) idea then leads to ensemble members being shunned at the stage door Mm -hmm. in favor of being the only signatures that fans want well now all you have to do is get an instagram presence and then people want your signature aaron sure Mm -hmm. i guess you should work on that i guess i should um this couldn't (laughs) run forever so Albano fact check number two. Okay. Have you ever had a composer come backstage after opening and kiki with you in the dressing room after a show? No. No. Why why has that never happened? Because after a show, you're literally trying to get out of the building Mm -hmm. as fast as possible. Yeah. I will never forget at Adam's family, Mm -hmm. there was an actor that his goal was to get out of the building before the music ended. (laughs) Like, okay, so like we come out, we bow. We finish bowing. The curtain comes down. The orchestra plays for like 90 more seconds, right? Mm-hmm. As people start milling out and exiting. This actor would literally get out of the building in 90 seconds. Oh, completely. Yeah. People want to go home. Oh, yeah, for it's sure. It's like 11. Yeah. And it, but, Those are but, local trains now, girl. Yeah. Mm-mm. Literally. Now knowing. Inwood's not going to come to you. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> With Tom Levitt going to go kiki, this is where I'm like, what is your relationship with these people? Right. Which composers can be, this is not saying that composers can't be friends with your ensemble or or like other actors in this business. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. But it's this weird, like, inappropriate closeness that while on a friendship level is perfectly fine, when the lines are blurred in a professional setting, it can get very dangerous for the actor. And that's... Especially if it's someone who's proven to be so volatile yeah and that's where I'm. it doesn't like, feel like a composer would be kikiing they may kiki with an actor but it mm-hmm. wouldn't be somebody that yeah. rips off their wig exactly and that's where i'm just like tom you're not looking f- out for the well-being of ivy by doing all of mm-hmm. this and that's where i was like and this is where i got to the end of it i was like pages are turning notes yeah. are being written this is where i was like okay what is smash actually about because this is when I got into that, like, okay, thematically, what is this show about? Because watching Tom treat Ivy this way, knowing who she is and knowing, I was like, is this show about dreams? Is this show about legacy? Is this show, or is it about, like, approval? 
or acceptance mm-hmm. or validation. Yeah, for sure. And that's where I'm just like, Tom, are you chasing this validation from Ivy almost more so than he wants the success of the show? Yeah. Interesting. Is Smash a melodrama? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Do I think it was as much of a melodrama as it could have been? No. Mm-hmm. But but again, like these show, this the, show, this show was about feeding the fire. The reason that Ellis is there is to feed the fire of drama. Okay. Yeah. You wouldn't I, do that in creating a show because you'd be trying to make as little drama as possible. Yes. Save the drama for the stage. Yes. But Ivy is chasing the approval of her mom, of Derek, of Tom and Julia. Like, is this what's driving her and these expectations that she's like, she's just chasing this validation and almost the most what the, almost the one with the most healthy perspective on all of it is Karen. And we watch her pulled away from the health. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was. The, like, sh- the show is telling us that the Broadway veterans are right but when we look back and we look at their motivations and why they're doing what we're doing, yeah, Karen feels like she has a much better head on her shoulders. Yeah. Right. Special thanks to Aaron Albano for joining us for this miniseries. You can learn more about him and how to connect with him online by visiting our website, theensemblist.com. To stay up to date with our discussion, be sure to watch episode three, Enter Mr. DiMaggio, either on NBC.com or on the NBC app before our next episode. And The Ensemblist was produced today by me, Mo Brady. Please help others find out about The Ensemblist by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I love making you say this. <laughs> it's fantastic. You can also download episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at theensemblist.com. You hear that Broadway said? He's mine now. Ah! <laughs> They're going to be so mad. <laughs> Follow The Ensemblist on Instagram to see the latest posts from our website where we share the stories of talented artists working in Broadway ensembles. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.